Hi, I'm Peter Laws, and before we get started tonight, I just wanted to thank all of my generous supporters on Patreon. Patrons help make Frightful possible, and in return they get ad-free episodes of both this show and my other podcast, Hometown History Europe. I'm adding more content all the time, like bonus video and audio and behind-the-scenes info and cool physical stuff like cups and things. If you're enjoying Frightful and would like to join us, then check out patreon.com forward slash Peter Laws. Thank you for your support. A couple of years ago, I delivered a lecture at a British university, and I was exploring cases of people who had died for a brief period, yet when they returned, they had fearsome tales to tell, frightening claims of seeing hell itself. And I thought I'd share some of those experiences with you tonight because many of them are rather nightmarish and not what you might expect at all. And so snuggle up and try and stay alive till the end because I'm Peter Laws and tonight on Frightful we explore a little discussed phenomena, negative near-death experiences and the glimpses of hell. Many religions and worldviews have a concept of hell. For example, the cold and icy Helheim, or hell from Norse mythology. This is the final destination for those who die without doing anything worthy in their life. Which means you can't be a Viking and just sit around watching Netflix all day. You have to get out there and achieve and pillage, and then you will die in glory. Otherwise, you wind up there in the icy terror of hell. Or there are hells of the Hindu scriptures, which have at least 25 specific realms, including ones delightfully called pus-eating, red-hot iron balls, and another realm of hell simply called diarrhea. But tonight, I would like to specifically explore the version of hell which perhaps many of us, at least in the West, are most familiar with. Especially because it is this version of hell which has fueled not only books, games, films, TV shows, and art, but also the majority of so-called supernatural visions that we are about to explore, and that is the Christian hell. In traditional Christian thought, hell is the eternal abode of the damned. However, the nature of that hell very much depends on your theology. Some Christians see it as a realm of eternal punishment, and that's the most common image we see in Western art and popular culture the fire, the brimstone, the proddings and pitchforks to the anus, while other Christians see hell as simply being annihilation or ceasing to exist, so that there is no eternal conscious punishment, but simply that the damned are snuffed out forever and no longer exist, while the saved are granted eternal life in heaven. Others still see hell in the light of the gracious and loving character of Jesus, where hell theoretically exists, After all, God would not want to force anyone into heaven, and so the option is there to be in hell. And yet the idea is that the place is sparsely populated and possibly even empty, simply because hell is not the place where everyone's partying. It's really a rather more horrible idea. And then therefore, when people are given the option to go there or in heaven, the notion is nobody in their right mind would choose hell. So there are, within Christianity, various flavors of hell, as it were. But there has certainly been no shortage of people who have claimed not only to believe in hell, 
but to have seen it with their own eyes. And having done so, they are eager to tell the tale. Well, we're going to explore a historical example of that in a moment, but then we will move into the unsettling realm of negative near-death experiences, where people have encountered horrifying expressions of the afterlife. We haven't got time to go through all of the various hell witnesses in history because there is a lot. So let's zero in on one lively example. She's called Saint Christina, also known as Christina the Astonishing. She lived from 1150 to 1224 in Belgium, and she was orphaned at the age of 15. Seven years later, in her early 20s, she had a massive seizure and fell into a coma-like state. The doctors pronounced her dead, and she was put into a coffin and taken to the church for a requiem mass. But as the priests chanted the prayer Agnus Dei, something happened that scared the living crap out of everybody. Christina sprang up out of her coffin, which is distressing enough, but then it's claimed that she levitated up to the church rafters, though some say she only climbed up. Still, the horrified congregation ran out screaming understandably as this dead woman was up in the rafters of the church. And the priests and Christina's sister pleaded for her to come down, and yet Christina apparently refused. Why? Because she said she was too sickened by the sheer stench of sin that was seeping from the people all around her. As more people gathered, she told her shocked hearers, that she really had died, and that she had been on a frightening tour of both heaven, purgatory, and also hell itself, places where she had seen sights too horrific to put into words. She claimed that God had offered to let her stay in heaven, but she came back to warn others about hell instead. And for the rest of her life, she warned people about the dangers of sin, sometimes climbing up into the trees to tell her tales levitating now and then for impact. And there were even stories of her throwing herself into fires and suffering with a terrible shrieking, only to walk out from the flames unscathed, just as she had done in hell itself. She allowed herself to be attacked by dogs, and still she survived. She even let herself be sucked into the wheels of nearby mills to be spun around and around, yet she remained unharmed. All this time, she warned others about what she said was the reality of hell until she died in 1224, and she was made a saint by the Roman Catholic Church. Though others have argued that she may simply have been suffering from schizophrenia, perhaps. It's interesting, actually, to see that Christina the Astonishing eventually became the patron saint of psychiatrists, psychologists, and those suffering from mental illness. But St. Christina is just one of the Catholic saints who claim to have seen frightening glimpses of hell. And yet visions of the underworld were not unique to the pious or saintly. In fact, during the medieval period, a large and diverse body of works developed, which became known as vision literature. Most came from Europe, but there were also some from Africa, Asia, and some Indian cultures. And these stories tended to follow the same pattern as the saint's experience. Someone would die and experience a hellish afterlife, and then they would return to warn others into piety and repentance. Even various peasants would share their own horrific visions of the afterlife, 
but being unable to read or write, the clergy would transcribe them and share them as a warning to the masses, using these hellfire tales in sermons to warn the flock. The vision literature genre peaked towards the end of the Middle Ages and then went into decline. Because by then, so many accounts of hell existed, people were starting to doubt their authenticity. Also, theological ideas started to challenge these claims. People were asking, how is it even possible for a dead person to return with a travel report on where they've been? Is eternity really a simple revolving door? And you might think that we would have left such visions of hell and heaven in the medieval past. Yet glimpses of the underworld continue today, which brings us to the modern age and the negative near-death experience. Near-death experiences are often described as NDEs, and the great majority of NDEs reported over the last 40 years have been described as pleasant or even as wonderful and heartwarming. A literature review covering 30 years of research suggested that about four out of five NDEs were classed as predominantly positive. Yet there are others who have reported horrible and deeply unpleasant experiences when near death. Yes, one out of five near-death experiences are predominantly negative or distressing. However, the International Association for Near-Death Studies suggests that the figure may be slightly skewed and that negative experience may be more prevalent than we think. This is due to the stigma attached to negative near-death experiences. Think about it. You get hit by a bus one night. Let's say it's the number 33 and as the paramedics work on you, you have a vision of yourself rushing to heaven. You see your loved ones, you high-five them, you go bowling with grandpa or something, and then you return to the land of the living. As intense as that experience may be, you feel positive. You tell yourself, wow, I'm going to heaven. I'm one of the good guys. This sense of pride and reassurance can make people more likely to share their story. Plus, the sharing of the experience may be welcomed by others as an encouragement, and so more people are likely to tell. However, let's say you get hit by a different bus the following week, the number 666, for example, and as the paramedics pump your chest, you see yourself plummeting down into a fiery pit, savaged by the screaming jaws of Satan himself. You wake back up breathless in the land of the living. Not only have you had a shocking vision, but it raises an inevitable question. What is wrong with me that I seem destined to head down and not up? There are all these other lovely visions of heaven, but I went to hell. For these reasons, it's possible that negative near-death experiences are underreported because of the stigma or the shame attached. Nancy Evans Bush from the International Association for Near-Death Studies and Bruce Grayson, medical doctor from the University of Virginia School of Medicine, have organized negative near-death experiences into three categories. And they're quite fascinating. The first category is what they would call inverse near-death experiences. This is where the NDE has the same sort of patterns of positive NDEs. That sense of being out of your body and perhaps moving to a new place or down a tunnel. And yet the feeling 
is threatening and hostile rather than tranquil. Indeed, the subject freaks out at the wrongness of it. They cite the example of a man who almost died after being thrown from his horse. He saw himself floating up to the height of the treetops and he saw the paramedics working on his body. Now, in many near-death experiences, people who see this sort of view can have a surprising sense of calmness, all things considered. But this man was not at peace with the moment at all. He started to scream from the treetops, shouting back down, No! No! This isn't right! Put me back! Put me back! And nobody heard him. Next, he said, he was whizzing through the darkness toward a bright light, where, yes, deceased family members were waiting. However, this left him not comforted, but panic-stricken, specifically because he had no control. In another case, a woman was having an NDE during childbirth. She saw the classic blinding white light. Yet this was not a welcome experience, in her words. It was a terrifying threat. In fact, she described the light as coming toward her on a collision course. She saw it as engulfing her, not as embracing her. So those are the inverse near-death experiences. The second form of a negative near-death experience was described as the void NDE. Here, people claim to encounter some sort of vast emptiness post-mortem. Such experiences leave people with a devastating sense of isolation and loneliness and a feeling of being obliterated in some way. For example, a woman struggling in childbirth said she felt the sensation of floating over the hospital building itself, but then she claims to have drifted off into deep, empty space, where she met sinister figures who told her that her life had been an illusion, a colossal joke. They told her that the void where she currently found herself was all there had ever been. Her life, or what she thought was her life, was a dream, a prank. The reality was the void. <laughs> Another woman, also in the midst of childbirth, saw herself spinning around and around in the vastness of space, knowing that the universe was utterly empty, except for me, she said. She described herself as a mere ball of light, screaming. Another man was attacked by a hitchhiker and rose up out of his body, and in his statement on his experience, he said, I was surrounded by total blackness, floating in nothing but black space, with no up, no down, no left, no right. I was only allowed to think and reflect. So that is the void, NDE. And the third form of negative near-death experience was more in keeping with the historical cases we've explored already the hellish near-death experience, where witnesses have much more visceral images of a hell-like realm. For example, one man died of heart failure and claimed to have fallen into the depths of the earth, where he stood at the high, rusty physical gates of what he said was hell. He managed to scramble back up to the earth's surface in panic and back into the daylight and came alive again which suggests that he's either an amazing climber or hell isn't particularly far below our feet. Interestingly, in the classic medieval accounts of hell, it was not uncommon for the witnesses to see creatures or monsters in the beyond. And this persists in the modern hellish NDEs too. For example, 
the report included this masterclass of understatement. Quote, An atheistic university professor with an intestinal rupture experienced being maliciously pinched then torn apart by malevolent beings. Another woman experienced a rupture of her fallopian tube and hemorrhaged. And she experienced an NDE, which involved what she described as, quote, horrific beings with gray gelatinous appendages grasping and clawing at me. The sounds of their guttural moaning and the indescribable stench still remain 41 years later. She writes, there was no benign being of light, no life video, nothing beautiful, nothing pleasant. You want to know something that is truly frightful? Acne breakouts. Ugh, aren't they just the pits? And how come acne seems so malevolent and organized that it always seems to appear just before something really important? I've spoken at conferences before, I've done media interviews, I've gone to really fun parties, and there's this depressed dread a few days before when I think, oh, crud, here it comes. So I know how frightful spots can be, which is why it's great to partner with Apostrophe, who have sponsored this episode. Apostrophe is a prescription skincare company that offers science-backed oral and topical medications that are clinically proven to help clear acne. And get this, they make it personal too. At Apostrophe, a board-certified dermatologist creates a personalized treatment plan that is perfectly tailored to your unique skin. That's pretty important because I've tried general stuff from the store before and it just doesn't really work with my face. So... All you have to do is simply fill out Apostrophe's online quiz about your skin goals and medical history. Then you snap a few selfies and then a board-certified dermatologist will create your customized treatment plan. Apostrophe treats all types of acne, from hormonal acne to facial, chest, back and (coughs) butt acne. Yeah, who wants that? Apostrophe helps you achieve your skincare goals. My skincare goals are just to try and avoid those bigger spots from breaking out. You know, the ones that make you look like you're a medieval peasant who just contracted the Black Death. It's not a look I'm going for. Well, we have a special deal for our audience. Save $15 off your first visit with an apostrophe provider at apostrophe.com slash frightful. When you use our code frightful, this code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash Frightful and click Begin Visit, then use our code Frightful at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. That's apostrophe.com slash Frightful and use that code Frightful to get your dermatologist-crafted treatment plan for $5. And we thank Apostrophe for sponsoring this podcast. We've been talking about near-death experiences tonight when someone seems to leave this earth and drifts down a tunnel of love and light or scary gelatinous monsters. Either way, these people seem to leave this earth, if but for a moment, only to come back later with quite the experience under their belts. Well, that happens to me, you know, quite often, in fact. I vanish for a while, but then return with a look of exhilaration and peace on my face. But don't be alarmed, I'm not having NDEs on a regular basis. No, I'm talking about when I just nip out for a while to score a little quality time with the brilliant puzzle game Best Beans. I love how I can just drop into this game whenever and wherever I want. And even if it's just for a few minutes or much longer, I'm working up my score with every second. I'm currently on level 66, but there are like thousands more with new challenges every time you play. 
It's a fab little game with a cool storyline, customizable teams, power-ups, and new events and challenges all the year round. Plus, you can play without Wi-Fi, so if you ever get bored drifting down that tunnel of light, you've got something to do to pass the time. So why not join the fun and download your favourite getaway, Best Fiends, for free today on the App Store or Google Play. You'll even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. There are many more negative NDEs we could explore, but the next question we could ask is, how do people respond to an experience like that? Well, the study found that there were three main ways of reacting to visions of hell. The turnaround, reductionism, and what they called the long haul. The turnaround is a reaction that is much more in keeping with the glimpses of hell we see in history. The experience is taken as a warning to repent and to live a righteous life. Such responders will often get connected with religious groups soon after, but it's usually not the more liberal type. Those who claim to see hell tend to be drawn to more fundamentalist groups, who preach a very literal fiery hell because indeed that is what they have seen, and they want to be protected from that at all costs. The turnarounds feel like they have been given a second chance and they often stop doing drugs or alcohol. For example, the atheistic professor who was ripped apart by malevolent beings, he went to Bible college soon after. Critics of the turnaround response would argue that these people are radically altering their life based on little more than a hallucination. Yet believers would say that negative NDEs are a profound gift, a chilling trailer that does not require you to watch the whole movie. You can change Not only a gift to the person themselves, but also to the world at large. Indeed, evangelical Christians can see a powerful ally in the turnaround people. They are often given platforms and book deals to share their story with the world. Just go on YouTube and type, I saw hell. You will not believe how many results you'll get. So that is the turnaround response. The second response to hell visions is called reductionism, where the witness opts for a more rational explanation. They say, my negative NDE of hell was simply a hallucination. One man, for example, had an NDE where he was attacked by gigantic geometric shapes. Trying to make sense of it, he later discovered that drug-induced hallucinations can prompt visions of geometric forms. And so he concluded that his negative NDE was just a reaction to drugs. Interestingly, he also had an earlier positive NDE, which was publicly spoke about by him as a wonderful, legitimate experience. Perhaps he was more eager to explain away the hell vision because of the stigma attached, but was far more willing to embrace and own the positive one. It's interesting and a little sad to see how the two groups, the turnarounds and the reductionists, might judge one another after having negative NDEs. The turnarounds see the reductionists as foolishly ignoring a warning, while the reductionists accuse the turnarounds of blowing things all out of proportion on the basis of a hallucination. These responses can end up causing division between the two groups. The third response to a vision of hell is known as, quote, the long haul. This is where people simply struggle to come to terms with the experience, and this can remain with them for a long time indeed. 
Some simply can't decide if what they saw was real or in their heads, and they are left wondering, what does this experience mean for me and the rest of my life? This sense of confusion can be distressing for many people, particularly when the visions remain so vivid in their minds. Remember the lady who said she could still smell the stench of those gelatinous creatures 41 years after it happened? Some people have to live with not only their glimpses of hell, but their inability to categorize it. And it's a reminder, I think, that no matter what our views are, rational or spiritual, we should try, if possible, to take a caring and charitable response to those who claim to have experienced these things, who are often very sincere, even if we believe it is just in their heads. And yes, we shouldn't just accept these accounts without any challenge. We should also recognize that for some, this is an incredibly traumatic and unwelcome, life-changing experience that genuinely affects their worldview, sometimes for the rest of their days. A book that particularly brought the idea of hell visions into the public view was one called To Hell and Back from 1993 by Dr. Maurice Rawlings. Rawlings was a renowned cardiologist who heard about positive NDEs quite frequently in his work, but he was deeply cynical about them and dismissed them as mere hallucinations. In fact, he called such patients who claimed to have a near-death experience as, quote, a little crazy. Until, that is the year 1977, when he had a particularly dramatic experience. He was trying to resuscitate a man whose heart had stopped. But then the patient started to frantically scream at him. Now, Dr. Rawlings had patients shout at him before, but usually it was to say things like, stop, stop, you're breaking my ribs. But this one, this man, had a completely new request. He said, for God's sake, don't stop Every time you let go, I'm back in hell. Afterwards, the man survived and asked Rawlings to pray with him. The skeptical doctor said that he found this insulting, but he mumbled a made-up prayer to keep this religious patient happy. The patient then started to tell Rawling all about his visit to hell itself. And Rawling, despite being disbelieving, was still intrigued by what he felt was the novel nature of a negative NDE, and it prompted him to interview emergency room workers in the hospital. He was disturbed to find that his file of hell cases, as he dubbed them, began to grow and grow. He compiled hundreds of these cases in his book To Hell and Back. Now, a cautionary note here. Dr. Rawlings admits that these cases converted him to Christian faith, and so some critics would argue that he had an evangelistic motive in sharing or even embellishing these stories, while others would say his conversion was a testament to how convinced this skeptic became of the evidence. Whatever the case, the examples that he shared continue to feed into the idea of hell being a real and frightening prospect for some. For example, one of the creepiest descriptions of hell in Rawlings' book came from a woman who had a near-death experience which left her in a wasteland, which she said was filled with naked, zombie-like people. But they weren't attacking her. She said they were simply standing elbow to elbow, 
doing nothing but staring at her. The place she was trapped in an infinite, insane asylum for the rest of eternity. Now, as well as people having visions of hell when near death, people have long wondered if it might also have a doorway, a gateway to hell, somewhere on Earth where we might get a peek into the infernal abyss. For example, in the ancient world, the underworld could be accessed through Lake Avernus, where medieval Christians, however, said the door to hell was actually in a cave in Ireland. This cave was linked to ancient pagan stories of the underworld, where hordes of zombies would march out in armies and attack the living. Later Christians, however, updated this idea and said that this was where the damned entered into hell. If you asked Tertullian, a prolific and influential Christian theologian from the early church, he'd tell you that the gates of hell weren't in any of those places at all. You would find the gates of hell, he said, quote, between the legs of a woman. Maybe he had a few bad dates. In the 1990s, the media reported that hell had actually been found in Siberia. At least that's according to a team of Russian engineers who drilled a hole 8.5 miles deep. But when they broke through into a mysterious chasm below, they dropped a heat-resistant microphone down with what must have been a seriously long jack lead. And what they heard became modern legend. Miles beneath the earth, they recorded the tormented, mournful, agonized screams of a great multitude of people. This is what they recorded. Now, for many, this was proof of a literal hell, and the story spread like, well, like hellfire, particularly among Christian broadcasters who were eager to prove the reality of the abyss. Turns out, however, it was a hoax. It's even said that the sound was just the loop of some screaming effects from the Mario Bava film Barren Blood from 1972. Both mainstream and some of the Christian press started to debunk the story, but people are still sharing it today as a proof of hell. So clearly, the very supernatural notion of hell still persists in our modern mindset. For example, the Religious Landscape Study of 2014 from Pew Research surveyed 35,071 people of many faiths and none in the US. They found that 58% of people believed in hell, 34% didn't, and 8% were not sure. In terms of religious affiliation, it was 32% of Buddhists who believed in hell, 63% of Catholics, 7% of Jehovah's Witnesses, and 76% of Muslims. But it was the evangelical Protestants who had the highest belief of 82%. In a more recent survey from Ipsos Mori in 2017, they found that only 21% of people in Britain actually believe in hell. Now, some might ask if such a belief is a negative or positive influence on society, and many would argue that it can only ever be a destructive idea that causes unnecessary fear and restriction. Yet others would argue that the idea of hell can actually help society. 
In 2012, the University of Oregon shared a study that claimed that according to international data, a belief in hell was associated with reduced crime. After an analysis of 26 years of data across 67 countries, they found that in societies where religious beliefs were more benevolent, i.e. where the focus was on heaven and a loving God and not hell, there was likely to be much higher crime rates. While societies that saw heaven and hell as equally plausible had lower levels of crime. Indeed, the International Journal for Psychology of Religion reported that undergrads were more likely to cheat on exams when they believed in a forgiving God than if they believed in a punishing God. The study argued that the, quote, threat of supernatural punishment has emerged as what they called an effective cultural innovation to get people to act more ethically to each other. But of course, that doesn't take into account the many unethical acts done by some churchgoers in the name of the threat of hell. Perhaps a more tangible prospect of hell might be seen in recent experiments to reanimate dead brains. Yes, in 2018, Yale University announced that it had successfully resurrected some healthy cell activity in the brains of more than 100 slaughtered pigs. They kept the reanimated brains alive for 36 hours and suggested that they might be able to do the same in primates and then, by extension, humans. The pigs did not regain consciousness, but those who carried out the study admitted that it was possible that they might be able to restore awareness in a returned brain. In response to this, Benjamin Curtis, a Nottingham Trent ethics and philosophy lecturer, warned that such a prospect could invoke a living hell on the human in question. Imagine yourself as a disembodied brain in a bucket with no connection with external reality and only your own thoughts for company. Reminiscent, perhaps, of the void NDEs we explored before. Or indeed, some tragic health conditions that some have already had to face before death. In the end, of course, your views of hell and the visions people have it, it will depend on your beliefs. And remember that even within Christianity, which has informed many of our stories tonight, there are various stances on what hell is. Indeed, some even say that Jesus talks more about hell in the Bible than anybody else. And yet other scholars would say, actually, he's talking of a place called Gehenna, a literal valley outside of Jerusalem, a grim place where child sacrifices sometimes occurred, but not a place that was supposed to be seen as the hell as we know it. That hell, with the metal gates and fiery beasts and sulfur and demons prodding buttocks, may owe more to medieval poetry like Dante's Inferno or artists like Bosch or Michelangelo than it does the Bible. But still, the glimpses of hell persist. Not only in negative near-death experiences or rumors of gateways, but also in our popular culture. Just see the amount of films in which hell features. Because hell as a symbol and an image just kind of resonates with us. It's interesting. Perhaps because the idea of heaven and total goodness is a little bit too abstract to get our heads around. When we try to picture perfect goodness in our heads, we might come up with a very banal and unambitious version of heaven. Whereas fire and screaming 
and pitchforks to the anus? Well, we can imagine that in vivid, painful detail. It excites and frightens our imaginations. And so, perhaps we will keep on catching glimpses of the fire. And whether it's real or not, I guess we'll all find out soon enough. And who knows? Some of us might even get a chance to come back and tell the tale. Hi, this is Peter Laws, and we love all of our generous supporters on Patreon. We're always adding goodies for patrons like ad-free episodes of both Frightful and my other podcast, Hometown History Europe. There's also bonus content, videos, and physical goodies sent through the post. To join us, go to patreon.com forward slash Peter Laws. And remember, you can cancel at any time. Thank you for your support. <laughs> 